in Romans, the book of Romans, today in chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. We've been trekking our way through the book of Romans. If you're not consistently with us, all the redemption congregations teach through Romans together, and we teach through books of the Bible. And so you have to understand when we come upon a section of scripture like Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, is that it follows the rest of chapter 8, which followed chapter 7 and chapter 6. And so the Bible's not meant to just give you a snippet, a little line to live by, but it's literally trying to capture you with the true story of the whole world, what God has really done in and in the midst of history and what he's continuing to do. And it, the Bible is there to implicate us into its story, to implicate us to say, how now will you live? How now should we live? And that's what we're after. Every time we open the Bible, we need to understand that this Bible is a tool meant to shape a people of which if you are a Christian, you are a part of those people. So as you open the Bible, whether it's to do your morning devotions over a cup of coffee, you open the Bible to do a Bible study, or you open the Bible now to hear the word of God preached, realize that this is a tool meant to sharpen you, to carve you into the image of Jesus, to be a full human being as God intended you to be. So as we go in to read this passage, I want to say to you, this passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, has been said that it's actually better sung than it is commented on. So I'm going to comment on it, right? Because it's <laughs> better sung than it is commented on. But take that in your mind as we read this passage. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, I don't know the stories of everybody who's sitting in this room. God, I know that there are many people in here right now who are secure, uh, who are feeling good in the midst of the circumstances, but there's more who aren't. God, I don't know all the questions, but I know that your word will not return void, that you'll do all that you purpose for it. I pray that right now we would recognize that you have a word for us as a church today, and you have a word for us as individuals. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Zora Neely Hurtson says this, love makes your soul crawl out from its hiding place. Because I stuttered, I'm going to read it again. Love makes your soul crawl out from its hiding place. 
Another way to say that would be love makes the real you crawl out of your hiding places. Quotes like that testify to reality, that we are in these places living real life out in the open, but in reality, we feel like we have to hide oftentimes. Many times we're hiding and we don't even recognize it, but we know we're not fully out there because the reality is life's scary. Relationships are scary. Circumstances are scary. But this woman, Zora Neely Hurston, says this, that love has an extraordinary power to pull us out of those hidden places. Love, this reality of somebody being for you, has an extraordinary power to pull you out of these places. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. And now, having four kids of my own, and being 36 years old, I have these moments that I look back and reflect upon my childhood, and one of the deepest things I am grateful for and try to thank God for every day is this reality. Though I was not raised in a Christian home, I was raised in a home where I knew, based upon verbal statements and based upon display, that I was loved. And I've, as I've reflected back upon that, I've thought to myself, the amount of security and confidence that that brings to any human being is profound. To be verbally stated to that you're loved and to have it displayed, that it's not just in words, but it's also in action. It's interesting, the Bible speaks about this all over the place, but now science is beginning to make these unbelievable developments in brain research. And so love and emotions were always relegated to the conversation of just the poets, right, and the songwriters. But the scientists went, we deal in facts. Well, now they're doing all this research that they can do brain research based upon emotions and how human beings actually respond when loved. And the conclusion is, it's powerful. And all the poets and musicians go, wow, that's rocket science, you know. But reality is experience testifies to it. Now science is testifying to it. That love, somebody being for you, even at cost to themselves, is of extraordinary power. So this has fueled my parenting. Many days I'll look at my sons and I'll say, Braden, or I'll look at Yale and I'll look them right in the eyes and I'll say to them, I'm so happy that you're my son. Or I'll look my girls in the eye and say, I love you. You know how much your dad loves you? And then we'll do this thing, so much. And I'll go, get your arms wider, so much. We've taken up this phrase from the Jesus storybook that the Jesus storybook says that God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. And so I'll say in a prayer, God empower me for this to be true, but I'll say, you know guys, no matter if you screw up or not, dad loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Because what I know as a parent is the security that brings somebody, but it transcends parenting. Think about it just in a marriage. If you know somebody's with you, for you, they state it, they show it, it is, brings incredible security and incredible confidence to go out into the world. This is why Tim Keller makes a statement about marriage in which he says, listen, your whole life could be good, but if your marriage is bad, you take bad everywhere. But your whole life could be bad, but if your marriage is good, you'll take good everywhere. The statement of that is it's the closest relationship you have. And if that person is loving you at cost to themselves and you know they're for you, it brings incredible security. 
assurance and therefore confidence to take on the world. It's true in a business setting. If your boss sits you down and says, I'm for you. You have all the freedom in the world. Go after it. Do what your heart says to do. Go after it. I trust you. I'm for you. That's incredibly empowering. Or if you're a player as an athlete, I play baseball in college and I'm around a lot of athletes. And if the coaches sit a guy down and say to him, listen, this position is yours. You're free to fail. Go play. Their numbers will go up dramatically in what they produce on the athletic field because they have somebody behind them, because they've been given security, because they've been empowered. They have extraordinary amount of confidence. That guy who plays on the field that knows his position is secure plays with far more confidence than the guy who's just trying to keep himself on the field, knowing that he may be benched. Now, if you're a coach in this room, I'm not telling you that every player should have his position secure. But what it does to somebody is just true. So we said Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39, said it's better sung than it is commented on. The reason for that is this is a thrilling and it's an ecstatic hymn, many commentators say, about Paul reflecting upon everything that he's just said about the truth of God's love for us, the amazing nature of how God's redeeming the whole entire world. And he comes to this point in verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? This is the moment that's like a coach's halftime speech, the very end of it, his halftime speech, or this is the crescendo of a music song that the whole song's been building up and now the drums start louder and the whole song begins to build to this point of celebration. Or it's the most memorable points in a speech. The most memorable speech or point of a speech of Martin Luther King is, you could say the words, I have a dream. So the I have a dream of Romans 8, chapter 31 through 39 is this. God is for us. Now let's just slow down for a minute and let that sit over you. If you are in Christ. Tim made this very clear a couple weeks ago. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you are in Christ and have placed a living faith and trust in Jesus, God is for you. God, God, the God of the universe, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who brought the whole universe into existence by his word is for you, relationally for you powerfully for you now here's what we got to ask prove it is God really for me and if so what does it do prove it well here's the two ways we're going to do that we need to look at what God has done and is doing we need to look at what God has done and is doing and we need to look at what Christ has done and is doing to prove that God is for us so here's the first thing look at what God has done and is doing God has proved He's proved through sacrifice, through giving, and through a signature, signing on the dotted line, if you will. He's proved through sacrifice, giving, the signing on the dotted line, that he's for us. And when that's understood, when you understand it and the penny drops, if you will, it will bring a tremendous amount of security to you. And to our lives. It will bring a tremendous amount of security to us when we understand that God has proved this. I just showed you these pictures of this church, this congregation, American Lutheran, who had this whole entire property. When these conversations began to start, 
and we get some of these calls. And I got this call. I didn't get that excited. I was intrigued to go into the next meeting, but I didn't get that excited because a lot of times there's a lot of churches and congregations or people in general, take it even outside of Christianity, who are agenda driven. Have you ever been around somebody like that? Right? Everybody's like, yes, I have been, and you're one of them too. But So they're very agenda-driven, and you have to work this out. You have to work it out in business. So I was trying to figure this out. The more we got to know them, I realized that, man, these people have sacrificed a lot. This congregation's been around for decades. They've gone through tremendous amounts of change, and they've sacrificed all along the way, and they've watched their congregation numerically in numbers dwindle. They've realized that to pay the bills is very, very hard, and so they, with blood, sweat, and tears, have sacrificed substantially in order to keep this place open. They've done work on the property themselves. And when we sat down in the place, I recognized that. But then to see their sacrifice in giving as well, to say, we'll give up ourselves and we're thinking about handing this whole property over to you and becoming a part of this congregation. The few of them that are left, comparably speaking to what's before, there was this sacrificial reality of we're gonna do this, we're gonna die to ourselves, the congregation's even gonna go away in name and all of this history. We're gonna die through sacrifice, we're gonna give it away. But even then, folks, when we had these great meetings, I still was not secure. I'm sitting there telling our guys, like, until we sign on the dotted line, I'm not saying I don't believe it, but that's when it's done. When the deal is done, until we sign on the dotted line. So when we did, the total package, <clears throat> their willingness to sacrifice, their willingness to give, and the signing of the dotted line did something so profound in us, and I would argue, in them. So our question, that's how we knew they're for this whole process. The statement in Romans chapter 8 is God is for us. How do we know? Through his giving, sacrifice, and the signing on the dotted line. Security in a relationship comes through love. And love is being for someone's good, even at expense to yourself. For greater love has no one than this, Jesus says, than he lay down his life for his friends. Love is being so for somebody that you lay yourself down that they might benefit. And it's fundamentally this deep-seated belief that your good, your good, is bound up in their good. So Paul says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now the proof, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know God's? For us. He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. It conjures up this imagination in many of the Jews who would have read this of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham was called by God to give up his one and only son. And Abraham laid all the materials upon his son's back to climb up a mountain to build an altar, only then to lay his son upon the altar to raise a dagger in which he was going to kill his son because of the word of God. And God said, stop. I now know, Abraham, your faith is real. It's a living faith. It's an acting faith. And he stopped him. He provided a sacrifice of a ram that was caught in the thicket. But here's what Paul says. God, when he put forth his son, didn't stop. He gave him up for us all. Greater love is no one than this, than he lay down his life, his literal life, for his friends. So how do you know when a boyfriend loves his spouse, when a man walks through a movie theater 
with a machine gun. And he pushes her on the ground and he lays on top of her and takes the bullets. Or a dad for his daughters. At cost to his own life, he rescues them. Jesus has this amazing statement when he's looking over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13. And he looks over Jerusalem, therefore the nation of Israel, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, but you would not come. Now, many of us wouldn't know what that's conjuring up, but the people who heard it would know. Fires were a real threat in that day and age. When we built this building, there's sprinklers in here, there's fire alarms, that if smoke goes up, we get out, hopefully unscathed and unharmed. In those days and age, there wasn't smoke alarms, there wasn't sprinklers, and this language conjures up a barn, that when a barn burns down, there's animals inside, and animals respond a certain way. They go crazy like we would go crazy. But there are some amazing stories that come out of moments like this with animals. One is, multiple times, it's been recorded that hens will gather their chicks together as they're a fire underneath their wings and when people walk into the burned down barn they'll see a charred hen with chirps underneath the wings to which they lift the charred wings and see the chicks alive and Jesus was saying to the nation of Israel and to the city of Jerusalem oh Jerusalem Jerusalem how I long to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings and you wouldn't come a recognition that salvation is needed, that impending judgment is coming, that sin and its consequences are real. But our Savior, our God, is a real Savior. Our God is a real Savior. God is for us. How do we know? He didn't spare his own son. So there's these moments I know that my kids would sit there and go, would your dad take a bullet for you? They go, yeah. But deep in their hearts, they're going, but my question is, would he get me a Wii U? You know, like, I know he'd take a bullet for me, but daddy, are you going to get me the new Wii? That's like, but, but still, they want to know that part of me being for them is the giving of good things to them, right? Like, that's great that you'll die for me, dad, but I still want some stuff. Now, just step back for a minute, because I could easily at this moment go, those sinful pukes. And the reality is, you and I are just like those kids, right? We're constantly after the next thing. Whether it's what the next deal's going to do you, or the next house that you're after, or the next car that you're after. And many of us, too many of us, even those who are called Christians, want it so bad that we're willing to push the other people under our feet, step on them in the process to get what we ultimately want. Now that's sin. Okay? Sin is the insecurity that's so deeply rooted inside of you that you think a person, place, or thing is going to ultimately fulfill you and you're so after it. That's insecurity. You're looking for something to get, give you security, to give you confidence. I've got to have that. And you're so after it that you're willing to step on other people in the process, whoever that might be. People you're doing business with, your family, whatever that might be. That's sin. What's not sin is the desire for the stuff. An over-desire for the stuff, sinfully speaking, is. But think about this for a minute. God made a world that's a bunch of stuff. Physical. Like, why did he make physical creatures? And then give them the calling to say, this world that I made that is mine. If you've been around the church much, you'll sing this hymn, the world belongs to God. 
It's all his. It's physical stuff. And then he says to pre-sinful humans, it's all yours. Rule and subdue it. Steward it. Care for it. Steward it means take care of it. Use your stuff for the purpose of service. Enjoy it. This is why the Apostle Paul in Timothy says, tell the rich, those who have a lot of stuff in this present world, not to be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't think you did it yourself. Tell them not to be haughty, to be generous, be a true human being who's a giver rather than a taker. Be generous, and then you go, but there's other stuff left over. And he goes, then richly enjoy it. Enjoy it. God gave it to you for the enjoyment, to worship him through his giving of good gifts. So in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus is trying to teach us about prayer, he says, listen, what father among you, if his son asks for a piece of bread, will give him a stone? Conclusion. Not very many, unless you're really sick, right, and twisted. And then he says, well, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your father in heaven give you good gifts? So how do I know if somebody's for me? Well, they give me good gifts. But as a father, I know at moments I don't want my kids to become consumeristic pigs who are selfish. So at times I'm going to go, no, you can't have that because you're getting entitled. Well, God's like that. God would give us everything we asked for if we knew everything he knew. He gives us things for our good. And what's ultimately good in God's eyes is this thing he calls abundant life. Life to the full that we all crave and are after whether we'd articulate it or not. Whether we believe in Christ and would call ourselves a Christian or not. What you're after is life. That's why you chase after all the stuff. You want life. Jesus said, I came to give life and give it to the full. So he wants to give us good things. And here's Paul's statement. Listen, folks. In your insecurity, you're after all this stuff. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Look at the next section. How will he then, not with him, graciously give us all things? Now, here's a moment you've got to understand what happens when Christ dies on the cross. is He doesn't just save us from sin, but he brings us into, literally the Bible would say it like this, and this sounds weird, I get it, but into himself. He brings us in, God brings us into his triune self and salvation. That's what the Bible calls adoption. You're brought into this family of God. He brings you in. That's where life is found. Life is in God. We are in God now. So he brings us into his family. Now, think about this. If I am brought into the very life of God, I'm made his child. And he owns it all. How much do I have? Okay, if I'm brought into God, <laughs> God owns it all, how much do I have? I have it all. That word all is the same word of God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called to his purpose. I have it all. Literally, I may not smell it at this moment. I may not have it. So he's going, relax. Like, what are you after? It's all yours. It's like the moment that the adult son's mad at the father in the story of the prodigal son. Remember that moment? That there's the story of the prodigal son. The young man goes out, spends his inheritance, asks his father for the inheritance. He's like, I don't care a rip about you. I want to go do what I want to do. He does what he does, and he ends up eating in a pig pen, comes back. It's like, hey, I'll work in my dad's pig pen just to be back there. And the dad lavishes a party upon him. And the 
older brother is so mad. He's like, I've sat here and been faithful to you. And you give him all this stuff? And the father goes, it was all yours. Like, what are you, what are you, you're not losing anything. It's all yours. What are you after? Why are you so insecure? Why are you trying to get all this stuff? Jesus is saying, through Paul, he who didn't spare his own son, if he gave up Jesus to bring you into his family, you have everything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's this whole argument of they're in a church and they're going, I like this preacher, right? I like Apollos. I like Paul. It'd be like being here and going, I like Tim. I like Paul Artino. You know, I like Justin Marshall. And at the end of this whole section, he's going, that's just rubbish. Like, realize these are all gifts to the church meant to build up the body of the church. And he concludes the whole section and he says this. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Don't boast in a man. Don't follow a man. You follow Jesus who created all those men. And in him, you have everything. Don't boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. You understand the logic at the end? You are Christ's, Christ is God's, God owns it all, therefore it's all yours. Relax. You can actually live freely now. He sacrificed at infinite cost to himself. He is the giver of good gifts to you. He owns it all. You don't have to chase after all of these things. You're in him. Now the question then is, is you're going, man, he did all that for me. And if he did all that for me, what you begin to go is like, what have I done for him? Right? This moment, you almost start feeling guilty inside yourself, going like, gosh, I don't know. And then you're thinking, and he's a holy God blameless and I'm going to stand before him and you, you remember all of these voices that conjure up inside you that tell you you're not worthy like you're actually a puke you're not everything you want to be and then you go out into the world and other people begin to condemn you you stink you're not good enough the job's not done well enough your beliefs are idiotic and stupid you're a moron for believing that I can't believe you raise your kids like that I can't believe you're not married. You're an idiot. You know, and then you're going, and now I hear all of that inside me. I hear it all from outside. And now I'm going to stand before a holy God whom you said, okay, he sacrificed for me. And he gives me good stuff. I mean, I'm like the kid whose dad blesses his socks off and then look at my dad and go, forget you. I'm out of here. And you're scared to death to sit in that moment. Like, am I righteous enough to stand in that moment? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's people? Who? Internally? Are you getting charges brought against you externally? He says this, it's God who makes you right. It's God who justifies you. Do you make yourself right? Do you now clean yourself up in light of all that? Oh God, I'm in debt to you. I now need to give you something. Are you going to give something to the God who owns it all? Like what are you going to give him? What are you going to give him that he doesn't already have? It's God who justifies. It's God who makes you right. It's not yourself. It's not those people. It's not internally having to measure up. This is the very thing Aaron Bauer was just saying on the stage. It is only by Christ. And he says, sit under my love. Believe upon me is Lord and Savior. 
It's God who justifies. That conjures up the courtroom. That conjures up the moment of sitting in that title room when going, until the deed is done, he says it was done in Christ, paid in full. He writes it across. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. How does God prove it? Sacrifice, giving, and signing it over. It's real. You're in God's corner. So in this moment where all the voices are coming to condemn you, if we're sitting in this room and there's all the voices, the voices inside of you saying, you're a schmuck, you're horrible, you stink, you're not good enough, screaming out at you, right? And then you go out there and everybody else is screaming out against you, at times hostily against your faith. In the world, there's times where people's throats are being slit whether or not they would deny Jesus or say they believe in him. Or renounce their faith entirely. There's all kinds of condemning voices against the people of God. Your flesh is condemning you. The enemy's condemning you. Other people are condemning you. It happens through multiple ways. The voices are screaming over. And here's what Paul's saying. You're in God's corner. Based upon giving up his own son, you are in Christ. You are as secure and as stable and as assured as you could possibly be because you're in him. He has your back. He's in front of you as the protector, like the front lines of an army, the supporter of being to the back, and he's flanking you, all of it. You're in Christ. It's signed. You are justified, made right in him. And not only that, but he's interceding on your behalf. What he continues to do is advocate for you and pray for you because he's for you, because God loves you. So here's the deal. This is what Paul's after utmost in this passage is a word called assurance. Based upon everything God did for us in Christ, he wants us to be secure and confident to live with him and for him and in love of our neighbors, okay? So he then goes on and he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Okay, based just up to now, what would the answer be to that? What will separate us from the love of Christ? He goes on and says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, here's what he's after. He's after assurance. And assurance is that thing deep inside your gut that you can't even communicate, but you're secure. You're sure. You're confident. You're secure. You're sure. You're confident. It's that assurance. It's, it gives you peace of mind, if you will. It gives an effect to you that you walk out and people go, that's confidence. Not the fake confidence of the guy that has to be the center of attention in the room and everybody has to look at him. That's called insecurity masked. But the person that's willing to be behind the scenes, that's willing to serve and never be noticed, the person that's willing to sacrifice, that can take a jab and a rebuke without it entirely crumbling them. That type of assurance God's justification, God making us, making us right, is to bring about assurance that we know that he is for us. That if God, God holds nothing against us, the world then holds no terrors in an effective way. Now, here's the question. If God holds nothing against us, therefore the world holds no terrors. Here's my major question. Really? Like, really, that's nice to say, God is for me, therefore nothing scares me. That's ridiculous, right? The, the, the world holds no terrors upon me because of that. So tribulation is not supposed to be a terror. Distress is not supposed to be a terror. Whether or not I can feed my family 
is not supposed to be a terror. Being naked, not having clothes, I can't close my kids or I can't clothe myself, isn't a terror. Real dangers that exist in the world aren't a terror. Being persecuted isn't a terror. Being killed isn't a terror. He now goes into this and he says this in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's what Paul's saying. He's looking and going, the world is scary. That's fact. The world is scary. There are people after you. The world is dangerous. Syria is scary. Sickness is scary. Sending your kids to school, it's scary. Right? Just to send them there, let alone to think that somebody might walk in with a gun, that's scary. Getting married is scary. Staying married is scary. Not getting married is scary. The future, just sit and think about the future for a little bit, and you're going to go, that's scary. I don't really know that you're about to make some deal on something, or you're not about to make a deal, whatever it is. Like, I'm scared. I'm scared it goes through. I'm scared it doesn't go through. Like, I don't know what all this means. It's future scary. Death is scary. Layoffs are scary. The lack of justice in our world is scary. The loss of morality in our world is scary. My kids will have these moments, you know, where they really reveal how secure you really are as a parent. Like there's these moments you'll get in the car and they'll hear a sound. What is that, Dad? You know, I don't know. Is it bad? And you're thinking, God, I didn't think it was, but now I'm really wondering. Like, I don't, maybe it is. You know, or the, or the last night, Yale gets strawberry milk. He says, I really, really, really want strawberry milk. So he gets on my iPad. He's like, can I tell, how do you make strawberry milk? And it says, like, get strawberry powder and stir it in the milk. Dad, can we go get, where do we get strawberry powder? Albertsons. Okay, so we go get strawberry powder. You know, he, he does it, takes a drink. He's like, ah, this doesn't taste the same as the strawberry milk you buy in the bottle at the store, store and whatever. He takes a bigger drink and it splashes in his eyes. I spilled strawberry milk in my eyes. Am I going to die? And I'm like, I don't think so, but I don't know. <laughs> like, they say weird stuffs in that thing. I, I really don't know. Or your kid feels something in their, their chest, or you feel something in your chest, and you're like, ah, it's nothing. But then you hear a story about Kevin Chuck, and you go, but maybe it is something. Like, the world is scary. That's facts. I don't know if somebody's going to walk into my kid's school or not. I don't know what's going to happen with world events, with Russia invading Crimea. It is scary. Paul's acknowledging that in verse 36. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sleep to be slaughtered. I don't know what it's going to look like to stand for our faith a decade from now. We live in a world where sin and all of its effects are real. They're very real. And we haven't been removed from that yet. That's the fact. There's a poet that I really love who has a, recently wrote a poem and he has this line in it that kind of is the, the main part of the song. And he says, tonight we sleep with lions all around us. In furnaces of fire we sleep. That's true. So what then brings security to us? The ultimate answer to these terrors and these accusations if there is an answer to these terrors and accusations, it's the confidence that we're standing in the right corner behind the right defense. Behind the right defense. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Christ Jesus is the one who died. He fought the battle against sin that we were guaranteed to lose. Not just your own sin that was going to bring about your death, but the very sin that creates all that crazy stuff I just mentioned. 
in the world. He came to pay the penalty for sin. What stinks about the world? What makes the world hard? What makes the world scary? What makes the world terrifying? Sin. Who can beat the battle against sin? Christ and Christ alone. And this passage says he did. Christ died. He fought the battle. Now, he fought the battle. Did he win? Here's the next statement. And he rose. What does the Bible say about he rose? He died and everybody went, we win. The enemy said, we win. Sin said, it won. And then he rose from the dead, triumphing over the effects of sin and death and said, no, we're victorious. That the song of Romans 8 is a lot like, I think it's the queen song, when a team wins a championship that says, we are the champions. He won, and now he stands with them, and we realize we are massive participators in the world of sin. And he stands with us and goes, but you're in my corner, and he advocates on our behalf. He's at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding on our behalf. And then he says, nothing can separate us from his love. We're in the right corner, we're behind the right defense, and that defender is supporting, protecting for us in all that that means. Therefore, what? Verse 37, no, in all these things. What does that mean for us? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does that mean? You're more than conquerors. Be secure, be confident for what? So that you and I, like God was for us, can be for other people. Love them. It's the greatest of all the commandments. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. That you, in confidence, now don't have to chase after all the stuff. Don't have to shore up your own security. Christ is secure on my behalf. He's behind me, in front of me, and beside me. So now I can be free to do what? Love. And let me tell you, folks, love's scary. The way the Bible tells us to love, that means the person who's wronged you, the Bible says, forgive and move towards them, not away from them. Your spouse who's not giving you the respect that you feel like you deserve and it's waging war inside you, the reminder that Christ is for you. He brings forth your security. He is your defense. He is your confidence, enables you to love in spite of that. The very love that says, wow, that corner over there, that's dangerous. Those people are dangerous. And yet God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We move into that. Even when a gun might be pointed to our head, what would motivate somebody to go to Iran to tell people about Jesus? What would motivate and free somebody up to waste their time with a handicapped person? Love would. Love enables us to do things like forgiving inside our home and crazy things like going places nowhere else would good go in danger in order to love. And the reason for that security and the reason for that confidence, we're going to put the slide back up one more time, is because God is for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us. We're overwhelmed by the reality that you are for us. Father, let us live in that truth. Bring forth the security, the confidence, 
and the assurance that comes from what you and only you have done and continue to do on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.